Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. We will be checking in with Adam Boileau in just a moment to talk through all the week's security news. Uh, and then it'll be time for a chat with Marco Slaviero from Thinkst Canary in this week's sponsor interview. And yeah, Marco is joining us to talk about some work Thinkst has done on creating uh, a failsafe uh, for their AWS Canary tokens. This is one of their favorite Canary tokens, the AWS stuff. Basically, you generate an AWS like access key uh, with no privileges or you peg it to like, like a dummy account. Uh, you leave it somewhere and then if someone uses it, you know someone has uh, you know stolen that credential. But obviously the risk is that someone finds a way to figure out if the creds have privilege or enumerate information about those credentials and also managing not to get logged so you don't get an alert. And uh, yeah, as you'll hear, this can actually happen in some edge cases. So things had to engineer around that. Uh, and yeah, that is what Marco is gonna talk about with us today. That is coming up later on. But first up, of course, it is time for a check of the security news with Adam Boileau. And Adam, it's all all about Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine the last couple of weeks. Obviously, we didn't uh, run a weekly show last week, but uh, that is certainly what's uh, filling up our internal Google Doc full of headlines. Yes, there's been a lot of reports in you know various mainstream media outlets as well as specialist ones, uh, you know, about the situation in Ukraine, and you know a lot of talking about the potential for escalation in the you know in the cyber domain. Uh, plus, of course, a lot of callbacks to previous uh, attacks by Russia and Ukraine on you know power and civilian infrastructure. You know, we saw uh, there was denial of service attacks uh, against some Ukrainian uh, government services again recently, and we've seen the U.S. government attributing those back to Russia. You know, in a matter. Of days, yeah, uh, it was. Yeah. That's the thing that I was going to comment on, right? Like we have seen them attribute a lot of activity to countries, right? But normally this is years later or months later, and to see this happen so quickly, it, it was quite surprising, actually. Yeah, I think there's probably been quite a lot of restraint generally in how attribution gets done because you know everybody does some cyber, and there's a bit of kind of you know you don't want to tip your hands about how much you know and how much access you've got. But yeah, the situation has changed, and I think seeing you know, attribution turned around so quickly is a thing that we should probably get used to uh, as this, you know, situation escalates further um, because, you know, shining some light on all of the things that are going on in the cyber world is really important for everyone who's currently trying to justify spending on defence, trying to justify, you know, being ready for what sort of fallout. Plus, of course, you know, helping, helping Ukraine deal with, you know, a, a pretty aggressive neighbour. Yeah, look, it's just crazy the level of activity uh, happening to do with all of this right now. We've had Caesar issue a blanket warning about, you know, likely Russian attacks uh, if things progress in Ukraine the way they look like they're going to. I sort of wonder about the utility of a general warning, which they go, they're at pains to say is not linked to any specific intelligence, just, you know, Russians hack and things are about to get interesting with Russia, so Russians are going to hack, like... Is that worth a warning, do you think? We had a, a similar thing from the, the GCSB, the spooks here in New Zealand, and I actually got asked by local media, like, do you think they mean that they have some specific threat of Russia's against, Russia against New Zealand? I'm like, probably not, no, I mean, other than by virtue of being in Five Eyes. But yeah, generic sort of, like, a bad thing might happen, warnings to critical infrastructure operators and that kind of thing. I mean, I feel like probably most critical infrastructure operators have some idea that computers are bad and could be used for bad things and probably don't need, uh, you know, another, you know, general 
you know, you should have thought about this five years ago, probably warning, uh, because, you know, I, I think they get that now. Yeah. And I don't know what you do. Like, what's the action you take from a, from a generalist warning at the moment? And we've seen this well, from a number a, of Well, it is a shields up warning from Caesar. So <laughs> well, I would yeah. suggest, Adam, the obvious course of action is to raise your shields. Yes. Well, I guess, you know, activate your firewalls <laughs> like activate your cyber shields um yes. <laughs> but yeah we got another story here from the washington post uh looking at how russian operators have likely penetrated critical ukrainian computer systems you know that's sort of scans as like passes the vibe check you know probably <laughs> true um we got a story here from catalan too in the record talking about ukraine dismantling a social media bot farm that was spreading a lot of misinformation and panic that's been tied obviously to uh, a bunch of russians We've got uh, news out of the United States, this one also from, uh, it's Catalan's write-up, talking about how, yeah, Russian hackers breached multiple DoD contractors. Uh, pretty interesting stuff there. But look, just going back to that warning for a moment, I actually had a long chat with uh, Silverado Policy Accelerator's uh, founder, Dmitry Alperovich, who's also uh, CrowdStrike's uh, co-founder. Um, yeah, we had a long chat about this, and, and he's of the view that... Once these sanctions kick in, if, if, if crippling sanctions are applied to Russia, if it you know tries to further its aims in Ukraine, it's not like they're just going to take it lying down. And at that point, the West is kind of running out of levers, right? So it might incentivize them to go a little bit wild. I can't say I'm completely convinced of this argument. I think Russia's operators are going to be pretty busy in the near abroad, but I also can't completely discount it. So it was an interesting discussion. I asked Dimitri just to send me a summary of his thoughts and uh, for, to play on the show, and, and here's what he said. One of the things that concerns me greatly is what happens if severe sanctions are imposed on the Russian economy as seems likely once they further invade Ukraine. And in that situation, Putin will have very little to lose and can escalate in a variety of ways. One of the ways, obviously, is economically by preventing exports of critical materials and energy to the West. But the other way is in cyberspace. And obviously, we all know that the Russian intelligence services are quite proficient in launching destructive attacks against the West. And once unleashed with no restraints, they can do a lot of damage to us. I have no doubt that the West would respond. But, you know, one of the ways that we are limited is in our ability to fight and, and do the same things that the Russians can do to us, which is attack their civilian infrastructure. We're not going to target their hospitals. We're not going to target their energy sector that is used by the uh, Russian civilians, they will. They will have no compulsion about doing that. And uh, in general, that type of escalation of tit for tat in cyberspace uh, is extremely dangerous and can easily escalate into a physical conflict if we're not careful. Now, I'm not sure if I agree with everything that Dimitri said there, but he makes good points. Yeah, yeah, he really does. I mean, the difference between what they are willing to do and have shown, you know, a willingness to do in, in Ukraine already versus what we would do in this kind of situation. Like, if we ended up in, you know, World War Three, I imagine, you know, then things may be a bit different. But, yeah, we, you know, we are constrained in, in the ways that we deal with that. And, you know, the economic sanctions leave a... What have we got left after that other than, you know, maybe some more sanctions? I Yeah, I don't know. It's a... You know, we are really in territory that is pretty uncharted, right? I mean, having... 
countries like Russia and the US with top tier cyber capability, you know, at near serious conflict. We don't really know how that plays out. Yeah, um, and I don't know how this escalates from, you know, hospitals getting fake ransomware by GRU into a physical conflict, right? Like, I'm yet to see something sort of escalate outside, you know, start in cyber and then escalate into a, into a different domain. Uh, and also, you know, Russia does have limited resources when it comes to the number of state operators, right? So they're not, they're not magic, you know, they're not magic cyber wizards. So I'd imagine if they started causing real trouble, there would be... Yeah, I mean, just disconnect the GRU from the internet, right? It's not going to be that hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, power off their office building or their internet or their upstream or, you know, their upstreams upstream. You know, they've certainly got options. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, if anything, this is just going to be a really, really interesting, you know, next three months, six months. I'm, I'm just going to say I'm predicting we'll be talking about cyber war crimes. Uh, Adam, cyber war? <laughs> Tired. <laughs> cyber war crimes. Why? <laughs> Uh, That's where we're heading, probably, yeah. Well, speaking of, speaking of, uh, we're going to do a bit of follow-up discussion here on that Red Cross hack. It's interesting, too, because Catalan wrote up for the record uh, that... They've, you know, there's a bit, of, a bit more information about the incident now. This is the attack that against the Red Cross service that reunites uh, displaced people, refugees, etc. And they've traced it down to a threat actor that used a Zoho bug. Now, Catalan points out in his write-up that the same Zoho bug was popular with APT27, which is a Chinese uh, APT crew. So I'm thinking at that point, I'm like, well... China is known to want to keep an eye on the Uyghur diaspora uh, in neighbouring countries. I believe they, they also try to extradite various uh, Uyghur Muslims back to China from cooperative countries in the Middle East. So I thought, okay, maybe that's it. But then Brian Krebs dropped an absolute banger on uh, Krebs on security in which he makes a pretty compelling argument that this attack is tied to someone who is in turn tied to Iranian uh, interests. Yeah, I mean, certainly attributing based on, you know, you hacked a particular piece of software is not super strong unless you've got a bunch of other technical indicators. But yes, I mean, Krebs, you know, does do a pretty good line on on doxing people and tying things together, you know, using a bunch of data from forums. And in this particular case, he had um, some records of people, you know, trying to sell or provide access to some of the data from that Red Cross breach that then had ties to previous Iranian operations and campaigns and things. So, you know, Krebs is pretty solid at this kind of stuff. But on the other hand like it absolutely could be china for the reasons that that you described and yeah just because someone has the data doesn't mean that they did the crime yeah i mean that's the thing it circles within circles and it's real hard to know but i you know i just remember that when we first heard this story we spoke about it and i flagged it as like likely spooky business because that data was of zero value to criminals Yes. Yeah, agreed. And I mean, you know, if someone broke in through the Zoho bug, and there's no reason the two different people didn't break in through the Zoho bug. Everybody loves their bug. Uh, mm. So, I mean, why not both? The old why not both attribution uh, could be. Uh, we got a write-up here from CyberScoop looking at delves into um, one of the attacks against Iranian state TV. Yeah, it's interesting because it's this campaign looks like a really odd mix between being really sophisticated and really unsophisticated, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an interesting mix because, I mean, there's some talk uh, of this campus. This is one of the ones that, like, injected video content into, a, like, a football live stream or a football game on TV. Yeah, this and is a the, bunch of other... we, we spoke about this one last yes. month, right? So, like, this is, a, this is a thing we have spoken about before, but we're just seeing some more details now, courtesy yeah. of Checkpoint Research, basically. 
And yeah, it's interesting that, yeah, there's some parts of it that looked really, as you say, quite sophisticated, custom-made backdoors um, and, you know, tooling that looked pretty fancy. Uh, and then, yeah, some bits that were a bit rubbish, you know, shell scripts or batch files with bugs in them and things that, you know, were a little bit sloppy. And, you know, sometimes that's just speed. Sometimes that's just, you know, it only has to work um, and doing these things in the wild. Sometimes there's a little, you know, your test environment for an Iranian TV station may not be exactly accurate. Um, or it it's could also be funny. just the, uh, you know, the graduate... Uh, inductee who lied on their resume or got someone to cheat <laughs> yeah, on the yeah, test yeah, for exactly. them, you know? Yeah, night night shift or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's also interesting that this uh, particular set of research is coming out of Checkpoint, um, yeah. which... <laughs> I mean, is it is it skiting? Is it um, <laughs> and like I don't know what's going on with that. Um, but yeah, it is it is kind of funny seeing some of these details come out because I mean, obviously, we look at anything that happens in Iran and go, "Well, it's probably the Israelis." And then, but who knows? I mean, it could maybe it is domestic. Who? who well, who, that's what are the we? thing that is clear from this is how unclear it is, which yes, is kind of exactly. what makes it so delicious, right? Because yeah. the Iranians were blaming their like domestic opposition. Uh, you know, obviously it was those dirty activists and, um, you know, who believe in democracy and all, all that bad stuff. And they're like, hey, it wasn't us. You know? <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, and meanwhile, Iranian operators um, are, out there exploiting that VMware Horizon bug, the Log4J one, man, that thing is hanging around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. And, and VMware Horizon, there's quite a bit of it around and obviously getting, you know, external access to internal desktop networks and stuff is a very, very useful thing I to mean, have. I mean, you, so you sure. know, you, you are a manager at a large pen test shop. Are you seeing much of it on jobs or is it is it mostly tidied up by now? Yeah, no, we, we, we still do see it around. Um, I don't know that anyone's shelled one from the outside in the last little bit, but... Um, but yeah, certainly I mean, on the inside. Yeah, and, and, you know, we have absolutely seen places where it is out on the internet, um, and that would certainly give me the willies if I saw it on somebody's mm. external perimeter. But in this case, uh, Sentinel-1 has been reporting on this particular campaign and has, you know, a bunch of the capabilities and, and TDPs you'd expect to see from, you know, operators like Iran, uh, and, yeah, tied together uh, with a number of public services, paste bins, and so on. Um, so that's show that still some good stuff to be had, uh, mining some of that internet stuff uh, for state-level actors as well. Yeah, now uh, moving on, we're going to talk about uh, another one by Catalan for the record. Uh, as usual, <laughs> this podcast contains 40% uh, you know, content by volume Catalan Campanu stories. China's APT10 has been doing some pretty nifty misdirection uh, in its attacks against the Taiwanese financial sector. They dressed up what looks to be a fairly sophisticated campaign. They dressed it up as cred stuffing so that people wouldn't really notice it which is really cool <laughs> we're starting to see i mean this is stuff this sort of misdirection people have been doing it for a long time uh but it is you know it's nice it feels good seeing this in reports you know what i mean yeah it does it makes the old school hacker and me you know f feel good that people are actually taking some time to you know be master their craft and think about it and be sneaky uh, and you know use all the sorts of you know, the tricks that hackers ought to have up their sleeves. Um, but yeah, this one was funny because, as you say, like they, they made it look like regular credential stuffing, but then uh, we're actually setting up for, you know, pretty long-term access into a bunch of, uh, you know, financial organisations in Taiwan. I think the, there was a security product involved, and we haven't seen a direct uh, description of which security product was being used for the initial entry. I mean, there's, you know, obviously there's some, some Taiwanese there's a long security list. vendors. There's a long yes, list of what it could some, be. There's some options there, yes, um, but, you know, that we've seen that kind of targeting of Taiwanese security products, you know, computer security products in the past by Chinese actors, so makes a lot of sense. Do you remember a piece of software called Snot? 
Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. That would trigger all, you gave it a set of snort rules as input, yeah. like a snort IDS product, and then it would just trigger 100% of the rules so that your analysts would go nuts. Yeah, uh, basically you, know. you could just harass IDS operators until they had to turn it off because yes. you would just throw, yeah, snot into the nose, you know, little pig nose, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, throw yeah, snot yeah. into snort and make it unusable. And, I, you know, this feels a little bit like that old school kind of approach, which is just make it look like cred stuffing. I mean, you know, you can engineer around that eventually. But my point is, we're just seeing more and more of this sort of cool stuff in the news. Yeah, I guess anytime you look at a, you know, detective control like that as an attacker, especially if you can see the rule sets like with an IDS product. But um, I know, you know, we'd often go look, you know, once you've landed on an internal network, you know, go read the SharePoint, try and find the reports from the managed security vendor, look at what they're reporting, look at what they've been learning on. And then you've got two options. You can avoid detection or you can trigger it in a controlled way at your convenience such that it suits your purpose. So, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a great technique. It certainly is. Uh, in ransomware news, the San Francisco 49ers have been ransomware. That's an NFL team, so uh, there you go. And probably uh, a higher impact uh, ransomware incident now. It's just breaking, but a logistics giant called Expeditus uh, has uh, been ransomware and had to shut down operations. This is an extremely large logistics operation, so this one is one to watch. Yeah, there's something like 18,000 people across 100 countries. So it's not a small operation. And we've seen the sorts of disruption that logistics firms, you know, getting hacked, getting shut down uh, can cause on global supply chain, and especially at the moment when things are even, you know, worse than usual. The company itself hadn't uh, said that it specifically was ransomware, but obviously all the reporting and the way that it looks from the outside certainly looks that way. Yeah, its share price took a bit of a dip after the uh, after the news first was announced. It's recovered somewhat, but yeah, this is definitely one to watch. Uh, Dan Gooden at Ars Technica has some follow up reporting on that attack against Vodafone in Portugal. It looks like they really were having a bad time, but still not. It's still not very clear exactly what this attack was. Whether it was wipers, whether it was ransomware, whether it was DDoS, it's just clear as mud. Yeah, it's a really interesting attack because we haven't really seen any specific details about, as you say, like the nature of it, but the impact is pretty catastrophic, right? Mobile services, fixed line services, uh, television, SMS, all the other bits and pieces uh, of their telco. And that's, it seems unusual in that respect. Like, you, doesn't seem like a typical ransomware unless their network is you know, particularly messy for some reason. Um, it, like, my first instinct reading this was this just feels like someone who's pissed off at the telco <laughs> rather than something else. like it feels like someone who actually cares about them being down but i've got no basis on which this to say feels just, this feels personal that's well, you're, well, you're the detective from the tv show who walks in and yeah. says this is so brutal it's an actor it's you know it's a crime of passion it's yes, personal. That, that's what it feels like and i you know I, i've been why else lo- would they have decapitated vodafone portugal's head and <laughs> stuck it on a spike in the middle of a field yes. Exactly. With a sign like, saying, die, Vodafone yeah, Portugal, die. Yeah. And, the, you know, I've been in a lot of telcos. I understand that feel. That's why it resonates <laughs> with me, perhaps. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, yeah it's, it seems unusual compared to what we've seen, you know, elsewhere with regular ransomware, regular wipers. It just feels, you know, personal. Personal. Yeah, this feels personal. <laughs> <laughs> so Lorenzo has written this one up for Vice, but a bunch of outlets have have uh, covered it. A Mexican businessman has been uh, well; he's pleaded guilty to a bunch of offences. Uh, I think what they were they they got him for is for like illegal comms interception or conspiring to do that uh, by brokering the sale 
of hacking team software and other software that was going to intercept WhatsApp messages and whatnot. But this is a sign that the US DOJ is looking to clamp down on shoddy use of stuff like, you know, hacking team, Gamma Group software, NSO Group, et cetera, et cetera. So finally, we've got some enforcement in this space. And I think this is a positive development. Yeah, obviously there's been quite a bit of misuse uh, of hacking software and hacking tools uh, in Mexico in general. In this particular case, uh, there was also some involvement of US uh, arms of some Mexican businesses, I guess, you know, extended some of the crimes out towards US, US jurisdiction. But yeah, I think if you were in the business of selling or supporting you know, commercial hacking software, you know, in a way that interacted with US interests at the moment, you're probably pretty worried looking at this. I mean, you, you would, you know, you certainly don't want to go, you know, over to Miami for a holiday, I think, if you were, you know, a Mexican spyware seller at this point. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's, uh, it's been carte blanche for so long. So it is actually, it is actually a sign of change, I think. Yeah, exactly. And also, it's a good reminder that although everything moves really quickly in the internet world, you know, hacking team seems ages ago to me, DOJ, you know, and some of the other authorities, you know, they, they do play slightly longer game than, you know, us, us nerds that are, you know, next thing every five minutes on Twitter. It's interesting you say that because one thing I've been thinking about recently is it's taken a long time for blockchain-based investigations software to kind of arrive. And it's really come into its, you know, companies like Chainalysis have come along and done a really good job with that. One thing that I wonder about is how many people are going to get in trouble for historical stuff because the blockchain is immutable and permanent, right? So you and I would both know a couple of people who maybe had some shady Bitcoins back in the day when the risk of getting caught doing anything with them was very, very small. But all that stuff's still on the blockchain and you sort of wonder, like, you know, is Chainalysis going to shit out their name or something into a report and they're going to get arrested? I mean, it's a very good question. As you said, it, it's kind of funny that that is kind of the point of the blockchain is to have that immutable record. Uh, and in many cases, you know, old school cash-based money laundering perhaps, uh, you know, would die faster, you know, in terms of the, of the trail you leave behind you uh, than, than the blockchain. And, and you're right, there are a few people in our, in our circles that, you know, did do uh, blockchain-related shenanigans back yeah. in the day or sold yeah. cloned Diablo items <laughs> on the Blizzard market <laughs> or whatever else. Um, or ripped off so, some heroin dealer on Silk Road uh, or whatever, yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you're right. Because why and, wouldn't you? How is that an immoral crime? You know, yeah, like if you could yeah. if you could take over some heroin dealer's account on on Silk Road, why would you not do that? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Uh, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. This just, is morally you know, complex, this, this, and you know, I don't yeah, want to see yeah. these people necessarily go to jail <laughs> for stuff they exactly. did a long time ago. Anyway. Oh dear. Uh, talking about shenanigans <laughs> in that world or kind of adjacent uh, world, uh, OpenSea, which is where people go to buy and sell their NFTs. Oh, I can't believe we're discussing this. But you know, know, we, right. we spoke about this hack recently where there was a bug where people could buy NFTs at previous listing prices and then resell them uh, on the open market, make a bunch of money. OpenSea's try been trying to refund some of these people and it hasn't been going well. It's really uneven customer service. So Lorenzo's written that one up for Vice. The funny thing is though, attackers were able to steal like a couple million bucks more stuff by impersonating OpenSea and their instructions to users on like the previous listing bug thing. So they're pretending to be OpenSea in the response. Saying, I love it. <laughs> you know, if you want to get a refund, click here sort of thing. So yeah, um, bad, bad time to be a bored ape aficionado, basically. <laughs> exactly. I, d I do love the, the, the follow-up phishing, you know, pretending to be them dealing with the previous bug. Like it's just, it's a beautiful thing. And I, yeah, I... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nothing more needs it to be said. Me, it uh, makes me happy. 
Now, Adam, we're going to talk about possibly one of the coolest hacks uh, I think I've seen. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I think this is one of the coolest things I've seen in years. This is pretty sweet. I mean, this is up there. Like, I think the SolarWinds-related campaign was probably the best hacking we've seen in, you know, a very, very long time, right? It was very sophisticated, multifaceted and whatnot. But this is at a smaller, you know, smaller scale, but extremely cool. Um, it involves a South Korean cryptocurrency platform called ClaySwap. Uh, no idea on who the um, perpetrators in this case are, but, you know, there is a group that is known to go after South Korean cryptocurrency exchanges. I'll just say that. But walk us through this attack because it has quite a few moving parts. And I just think it's, you know, it's sensational. It's really, you know, I mean, it's good work. Well done. So the attackers here actually went after the server infrastructure from this company, Kakao Talks, the instant messaging platform in South Korea has a bunch of, you know, CDNs and other platforms and the cryptocurrency people, ClaySwap, were hosting some of their content uh, on Kakao Talks developer infrastructure. And so the attackers here... Uh, set up a you know an AS autonomous system on the internet and advertised uh, IP addresses that provided a particular you know, one of the servers from Kakao Talk uh, and uh, trojaned the JavaScript that was being used as part of uh, you know the cryptocurrency platform to send transactions to other places and of course also had to you know set up SSL certificates and so on uh, to be able to make that thing particularly smooth and then they had a bunch of kind of restrictions to make sure that the malicious JavaScript was only being served uh, to users of the cryptocurrency platform uh, and they managed to make off with what almost two million dollars worth uh, of cryptocurrency by redirecting transactions using their malicious just JavaScript, which... I mean, the fact that they did a BGP announce for some back-end JavaScript, which was being served, you know, elsewhere, and the fact that they managed to get a valid TLS cert for this thing. I mean, they tied a lot of stuff together here, and it's beautiful. Yeah, no, it's it's really smooth, and, you know, it's clear that quite a bit of thought and setup went into it. In a way, I'm kind of, you know, I feel like they probably should have got more than, than a couple of million bucks. Yeah, I know. I was like, a couple of million bucks? I mean, you see some of these idiots with these double spend vulnerabilities in Ethereum smart contracts get like, you know, $650 million. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, here's mate. these guys getting valid TLS certificates for stuff they've BGP hijacked so that users are going to wind up with malicious JavaScript served by a third party. And what, you get $1.9 million? Ripped yeah, off. Like, like, that's enough for what, three monkeys, right? I mean... Yeah, how many bored <laughs> apes can you even get for Yeah, that? yeah, exactly. Um, all right, we had a quick look at the, the cert transparency logs. Uh, it looks like they got a cert, they got certs for it from uh, uh, Zero SSL, which is kind of like a Let's Encrypt competitor. Um, so they would have just, you know, set up the IP jack and sorted the certs out. If you look at the timelines on the cert transparency, you can see kind of matches up with what's been uh, reported in, in the piece here and then subsequently revoked, you know, uh, a little about a month later, I think. So at least cert transparency. Well, we all know how worked. good, you know, SSL, how well SSL <laughs> revocation, revocation is, yes. works, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah, problem yeah. solved. Yeah, but no, smooth. Like the, the, I, my hat is off. To, yeah. And I hope you, in, you know, invest your money wisely and don't just buy monkeys on the internet. Staying with the cryptocurrency world, um, oh, someone God. got a 250K uh, bounty from Coinbase. But for, for this bug, this bug is... Just you, I mean, I'm just stunned no one actually yes. found it and used it, right? And 250k seems a little bit light for a bug like this. Yeah, the seeds so the core of this bug was you could like place an order to you know buy or sell or something uh, from your account, 
and then you could switch the values out and switch the accounts that you were using to transact with you know in the API message when you were posting to point to another account and it didn't actually validate that the currency like the instrument that you were using was the same so you could substitute Shibarinu for Bitcoin, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, for Bitcoin, and and, and you know, leverage that and steal infinite money from Coinbase. Which, as you say, like wow, that no one tried <laughs> yeah. that yet. Like that, this is how you know one of the bigger exchanges w- w- worked. I'm <laughs> wow. Well, you'd uh, hope they'd have some secondary controls that might catch it, you know, and they're not going to have hope. all of their currency in in you know hot storage, right? So, <laughs> but yeah, someone would have but been able to do some damage K. with that, and it was worth more than two fifty k for yeah, sure. Jeez, jeez. Yeah. Uh, and look, I mentioned Chain Analysis earlier, and there's a write-up of uh, one of its reports in uh, CyberScoop by Joe Warminski. And um, yeah, there's like a, it turns out there's like a handful of businesses based in Moscow that are just so disproportionately huge when it comes to uh, Bitcoin laundering. Um, what comes through though, increasingly when you read these Chain Analysis reports, and they publish them so regularly at such a tempo. Uh, But what comes through is really the days of cryptocurrency kind of being lawless and untraceable, they're pretty much done, right? That the the arrests of those uh, people in New York, that that couple uh, who were laundering, you know, billions of dollars in stolen Bitcoin. Uh, then you look at this, you read the reports and you realize, yeah, it's probably not going to be a great currency. Uh, you know, stuff like Bitcoin is not going to be a terrific uh, currency for crime uh, for much longer, you wouldn't think. Yeah, it's really interesting seeing, you know, these techniques mature and some of the, you know, new approaches and ways of thinking about doing this that, you know, a bunch of people like Jane analysis uh, have come up with. Um and yeah, you're right. Like the, and especially you know, apropos of your comment earlier about you know, the long chain of the block, the long tail of the blockchain, uh, going back and be able to go back and look at previous crimes. And I think about how well we've used that technique when you come up with, you know, seeing network indicators compromise and then having lots and lots of PCAPs you can go back to over time and then reapply and get a better understanding of how you know bad things happen and then use that to walk forward to find the later places you know where the opsec was better but they didn't think about it early on. Yeah, I think there's just a bunch of of, of material and options here that we are starting to discover and you know the scale uh, that they were talking about in, in the case of this Moscow Moscow uh, sets of organizations I mean you know a billion dollars here half a billion dollars there coming from addresses that now they've got enough data to be able to say hey this stuff's probably shady this stuff's probably illicitly sourced it is you know it's kind of interesting um, that you know, that's the point that we're at and you know you do wonder how all of the people who thought bitcoin was going to you know make them untraceable and free uh, are now starting to change their tune perhaps i don't know yeah uh tom uren for seriously risky biz wrote this up uh for us last week and he he took it a bit further and looks at how decentralized finance services are probably going to be where a lot of this illicit uh stuff winds up because you don't need third party brokers etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know, it's the Bitcoin party might be over, but it doesn't mean that other types of crypto assets aren't going to be used for illicit purposes into the future. And there are some legitimate challenges uh, there. Uh, another one from Catalan here over at the record, the FBI uh, has issued a warning about virtual meeting platforms being used in BEC scams. And it's interesting, right? Because you've got some scenarios described here that, are pretty interesting. So, you, you like someone might schedule a meeting on like Google Meet or whatever or Zoom, 
uh, they'll impersonate the CEO by using a still image of the CEO. And then they might even do a real-time deepfake audio saying, oh yeah, you know, my video camera is not working or whatever. And then start, you know, vocally instructing people to make transfers and whatnot. Um, the, the amount of innovation and sneaky thinking that these BEC people get up to is quite impressive. Yeah, no, but this is you know a great example of pragmatic hacking, right? I mean, going where where these things work, and it's a you know, pretty natural you know escalation of business business email compromise to use any other communications channels that make sense um, and you know leverage the trust that they have, and I think that angle is made worse because of the kind of the change from what used to be internal messaging systems to be increasingly federated so things like slack or teams um, now allowing you to message outside of your organization kind of transparently so people are you know a little bit more used to uh, using those tools beyond just sort of internal chat replacement or internal chat tools um, and more and more business functions you know popping up and stuff uh, in those so kind of makes sense I was a little unclear reading the reporting whether the example of deep faked audio was a thing that had actually happened or a thing that could happen well we, um, we know that it's happened in um, telephone conversations already so it wouldn't surprise me at all if they were doing it via zoom now Yes, I mean, I think, you know, clearly the technology exists well enough. It was just interesting because the some of the previous FBI announcements really were focusing on um, the use of, like, GAN-generated profile images as being one of the examples of synthetic content that they had seen being used. So um, we've only seen a few examples of actual deep-faked audio, even though, I mean, you know, you and I both know, <laughs> having seen deep-faked Pat and Adam talking about stuff on Risky Business, um, that it's, you know, the technology is still very usable, especially over a kind of low-bandwidth, kind of crappy-sounding audio connection on a phone. Uh, but, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see people actually, you know, some recordings of it actually happening, you know, on, on Teams or Zoom or uh, Google Meet. Yeah, I mean, I have no doubt that it is happening, and even if it's not, that it will happen, and quite yes. soon. I mean, it's 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 actually impressive the degree to which these fraudsters have been able to make this technology, uh, you know, put it to use, right? So, um, yeah, I wouldn't be throwing shade on that one, man. If there's an FBI warning about it, I'd take it seriously, <laughs> personally, right? <laughs> yeah, so you remember... Most people listening to this would remember uh, that a journalist in Missouri uh, clicked, you know, view source on some government website and, and, and saw a whole bunch of social security numbers. Uh, they reported this. Uh, they, they ran a report on it, but they responsibly disclosed it to the relevant authorities. Uh, and then the governor did his block and threatened to lock him up and charge him with all sorts of crimes. Now, this isn't something that we actually covered on the show for the very simple reason that we anticipated this outcome, which is, of course, this person was not going to be charged with an offence. Because there was no offence committed. This wasn't some sort of grey area thing. Uh, ultimately, and that's the news that we're talking about today, the prosecutor has declined to uh, prosecute the case. And I, I said on Twitter, like, it was always going to go this way. And people said, oh, it's because of the pressure. No, it's because there was no crime committed. Anyone trying to bring this to a courtroom would have been laughed out of it. Um, just laughed out of it. And it would yeah. have opened them up to lawsuits. Like, there was just no crime. This is always what was going to happen. Yes, and I, you know, it's really nice to see the correct outcome occur, you know, because the world can be a little crazy this day, these days. But yes, no crime, not going to get prosecuted, pressing F12 uh, and viewing source. I, I think the social security numbers in question were like maybe base 64 or something, and they were arguing that, oh my God, on base 64 or something was also a crime. But no. But no it's crime. not. No crimes. <laughs> you know no I mean? crimes. Like, now, look, if this, if this same journalist had have used a uh, direct object reference vulnerability, say they changed a parameter in a URL right? Incremented a number. Even that gets into a grey area, right? That's when it would have been interesting because it's like you could 
maybe mount an argument that a law had been broken. But in this case, there was absolutely, it was all <laughs> just F12, you know? Yeah. It was all client side. How's that, how's that, how's that ever going to be a crime? Yeah, and it had been that way for what, something like 10 years it now has now transpired as well. So, yeah, uh, I'm glad that this guy is now, you know, not facing down, you know, potential of being prosecuted, but still rough ride to get here. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, you know, that journalist is set now. They're going to be doing speeches at, you know, corporate dinners for years to come. And, um, happy days. Um, I, I, I don't want to really get into it here uh, because, Tom, you uncovered it beautifully in last week's Seriously Risky Business newsletter. Of course, do subscribe to the newsletter if you haven't already. Uh, the Washington Post actually has a write-up of some research from Sentinel-1 uh, looking at how just how targeted an Indian activist by the name of Rona Wilson was. This is the activist who had, um, you know, evidence of crimes planted on his laptop by who knows who but yeah it turns out like this guy was targeted by an awful lot of apt crews probably um uh indian organizations who were either collecting on him or you know trying to trying to plant evidence on him and stuff and it's just uh yeah it's an interesting read so do check that one out uh another yet another catalan kimpanu story here thousands of npm accounts use email addresses with expired domains is the headline uh not exactly a surprise um but you know this story is based on some academic research showing that um Yes, indeed, there's a whole bunch of uh, expired domains tied to NPM packages, so you could just register those domains and hijack the NPM accounts for victory and profit and Bitcoin and NFTs and whatever else. Yeah, that's certainly, it's a, it's a great line of research to go look into, you know, any kind of software supply chain aspect where you can, you know, take over domains and even domains themselves. Like if you've got the data to go and map what domains are registered by domains that are accounts and do it kind of like second, third order away, uh, that's a thing that we've used on engagements and it does work pretty well. So yeah, good, good work. And uh, yeah, it's, um, it's amazing. We haven't seen more things ruined with this kind of approach. Tonya Riley for CyberScoop has a write-up on the Earn It Act. This is an act that we've discussed on the show uh, back in 2020. This is the thing that would basically force tech providers to prove uh, that they are operating uh, their services with built-in controls to uh, cut down on things like uh, child abuse material, the distribution of uh, child abuse material, etc. It's actually, there's some interesting stuff in here, right? So, the story posits that the law is written in a way that would allow some of the states to perhaps demand various encryption schemes be subverted. Um, that's one thing. But the thing that really hit me reading through this is the paragraph. I'll, I'll read the paragraph. Privacy advocates warn that not only could the bill deter platforms from offering encrypted technology, but it could also pressure them to ramp up what is known as client-side scanning. Well, my message to those privacy advocates would be that's what the bill's designed to to do (laughs) like that's the whole point of the bill is to make sure these tech firms if they're going to offer e2ee uh put in some sort of compensating control to ensure that the people using their services are safe yes i mean that that is specifically the earn the earn it in the name is that they have to go and do a thing and you know you're a bunch of smart nerds you come up with something then it seems to be the the vibe from it and yeah client-side scanning was certainly one way to try and approach that maybe there's some other ways to approach it as well but yeah i don't know why anyone's surprised that as you say the, the intent of the bill is in the bill 
Uh, another one from Tonya Riley over at CyberScoop, which is the SEC is looking to uh, adopt a recommendation for tighter mandatory cybersecurity requirements for financial institutions, including sort of mandatory breach reporting. This looks like the SEC moving towards, you know, regulating mandatory reporting along the lines of what's been proposed uh, in a new act of legislation that's uh, been, that, that so far has failed to pass just because it didn't quite get stapled to the Defence Authorization Bill in time or whatever. But yeah, it looks like the SEC is going to do some of the lifting here, at least as far as um, companies within its remit are concerned. Yeah, and all of the things they're proposing are kind of what you would expect, you know, good quality access controls, doing risk assessment, sharing data about breaches or other you know bad things that happen, making sure the data is shared with boards. And I, I, reading this, I was struck by the contrast between you know, what seems like a really sensible set of controls for big financial orgs and then how much time we spend every week talking about, you know, cryptocurrency exchanges and internet, you know, apes and all of the terrible ways that goes wrong. And it's like, this is kind of what a real financial system looks like with, you know, regulations and sensible controls and things to try and make the market a bit more, you know, less Are you suggesting we need to regulate bored apes? Because I think that's a waste of effort, man. I think just let it let it burn. Let it burn. You let it burn until it's just um, ash, until it's just a memory. It does sound easier than having to do yet more risk assessments. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine if the Actually, if yes. the if the board ape crash of twenty thirty two triggers the next depression? That would be something. He said, "Let it this. burn," and little did he know. Um, little, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and finally, Adam, just a, a recommendation, uh, something for people to check out. Dina Temple-Raston over at uh, The Record uh, has uh, sat down for a long interview with Reality Winner and has written a long feature. Uh, I believe there's some audio with that as well. Uh, Dina is an ex-NPR uh, investigations uh, reporter. So, yeah, really, really good stuff here. Uh, really well done. And that's just if anyone's interested in, in reading about, you know, Reality Winner's reflection on what she did and a little bit more about her life. Uh, you can go and uh, read that there at the record. Did you check it out? Yeah, no, I thought it was really interesting because, I mean, you always wonder about what's the path from, you know, working at a place, you know, like the NSA or at a defence contractor to, you know, leaking something to then get, like, what, how do you end up there? And it's just a really interesting story and... You know, I certainly think if you were, a, you know, a, a kid studying, you know, international relations or security or whatever at university, and you're thinking about taking a career up into the, you know, the spook world or the military world, like it just seems like it would be an interesting read because she seems quite naive in some ways and yet also, quite you know, smart. quite yeah. thoughtful and smart. Yeah. And that's, you know, I know there's a lot of it's people like that. It's called being young, know. Adam. <laughs> well, there is that, yes. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think it's a really good read for for us, you know, pundits and industry and trying to understand how things end up like this. But also, yeah, if you're, you know, a, a young person getting into this world, I think this is a really useful read. All righty. Well, with that, Adam, that's actually it for this week's news. Uh, it's been a pleasure to chat to you, my friend, and uh, we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. Talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Marco Slaviero of Thinkst Canary. One thing Thinkst offers its customers and even non-customers through its free canarytokens.org service is the ability to generate zero privilege AWS access credentials and you can leave them on your systems and if someone actually tries to use them, you get an alert and then you know that the system you left that credential on has suffered a breach. 
But here's the thing. There are some circumstances where an attacker might be able to actually enumerate some information about an AWS credential without tripping logging, right? Uh, mostly because AWS has about 6 million different APIs all written by different teams. So yeah, Marco will be talking about that, about those edge cases. Uh, there's a blog post on this that Thinkst have written that I've linked through to in this week's show notes too. And yeah, Marco's also going to talk about how Thinkst managed to accidentally vape a couple of million Canary tokens during the Log4j drama. They went from having 600,000 or so Canary tokens on their system to something like three and a half million uh, in the space of a few days as everyone used Thinkst to test for Log4j issues. And yeah, due to a series of unfortunate events, they wound up losing some of the Log4j uh, specific tokens that were generated during that crisis, which was a bit of an oops. Uh, so Marco will sheepishly uh, talk about that. And yeah, they're also they're hiring engineers. Uh, so we'll touch on that as well. Anyway, here is Marco Slaviero. Enjoy. You know, one of the reasons we, we really love that AWS token is like it's a super high indicator of badness like so so with really low overhead you create like this tiny config file you scatter it around and if that thing is used the sort of the quality of the information that you get back is great right so you're getting back like the ip of the person making the request you're getting back some of their, their user agent info um, you're getting back the exact api call they made when they made it um, and that sort of stuff for uh, incident responders is really valuable but as you say like there are these edge cases, and and when these edge cases occur, um, and and they occur because within the Amazon team, you know, there's like over I think something like nine thousand APIs, and those are built by individual teams. If some developer inside Amazon doesn't log that particular new API call that they've that they've that they've written, then there's a gap, and. Um, well, there's only as, a gap. You, there's only a gap if that API call actually winds up telling you something useful about the API key you're trying to use, right? Like if it just fails yep. the same way, uh, whether the authentication would be successful or not. I mean, it doesn't get the attacker anything in terms of figuring out if they've got genuine creds. So, you know, it is going to be that weird edge case, isn't it, where you get a different response based on valid versus invalid to some obscure API that's not logging. Like it is an edge case. It's a complete edge case, uh, but we know that that's what attackers uh, are attackers, looking for. <laughs> that's what they're looking for. That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. Um, like the folks at Rhino Security put together some tooling a while back, specifically around this stuff, so, so being able to detect keys that were canary tokens through this this mechanism. Those. So, like when we when we become aware of these, we report them to Amazon. Amazon is slowish, I guess, uh, is one way to put it to to kind of get that stuff into CloudTrail. But they eventually do, and so the ones that we were aware of uh, have been patched. But yeah, as as you mentioned in the in the lead up to this, um, after we put out this blog post in the Safety Net, someone on Twitter, uh, Nick Frechette, um, he he said, no, actually, there's there's the particular API call that I use to test this stuff, and uh, it's not. It's not logged to CloudTrail, but it does give you the information about the the calling uh, API key, and he tested the the safety net that we that we put together. Hey, and, just before we do uh, that, so so say an attacker has obtained um, you know uh, an API key for Amazon, right? Would this use case that this Nick fellow came up with, would this edge case that this Nick fellow came up with allow you to infer information about the sort of privilege level of that API key or just whether or not it's it's genuine or not? Like, like what could an attacker tell mm. about the key that they had based on this, um, you know, this uh, edge technique? That edge case. Yeah. You could tell which account and the username of the account. So that's that's it. But but like with you know canarytokens.org, we use 
a small number of accounts right on the, on our free server so we we're not trying to prevent that sort of attack um, and we don't have a huge pool of accounts there that uh, that we pull from so so, so it's you'd possible be able to someone tell... would get an api key and they would be able to tell hey this is actually a canary token yes um, yeah. so it used to be the case yeah but but within the aws api you can't uh, you, you can't easily tell what permissions are assigned to a key so effectively you have to enumerate that stuff by calling well, there's a few. The one is you can directly query it, the IAM service and, and pull that information, but most keys don't have permissions there. So the alternative is you basically try every API and see which ones you've got permissions for, which is super noisy. No, but, but you've, ex you've explained it well, which is that like if they can infer the um, the the account, uh, the user, mm. then um, you know, and, and people know based on their experience with Canary tokens, hey, this is you know likely to be a CanaryTokens.org user, then um, yeah, yep. that's not what you want. Yeah. No, that's not. Um, and actually, we've got to give shouts here to Scott Piper because uh, we took his AWS training last year. We had this chat with him about the problem and he, given his knowledge of AWS, was just like, hey, you should really check out. There's a credential report that you can generate and, and that's what the basis of the, the safety net is. So, sort so of yeah, this, let's let's the, talk about that now because this is your, your solution to this is something that you're calling hmm. safety net. Like, what is it? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, it's a very straightforward implementation. So basically, AWS lets you generate a report, like a CSV report of every API key that you've got in an account. We pull that report. We compare timestamps on when they were last used to uh, basically another record that we've got from sort of the regular flow, I guess, of timestamps in there. And if we see keys that have been used more recently in this uh, low fidelity report than we've got other records for, well, then we go, actually, the safety net has caught this thing and we, we send out the alert. So like it is like the, the implementation straightforward here, like there's nothing uh, particularly special about it. But I guess the one thing here with the, with the report is it is a low fidelity report in terms of the details we get out. So we can only generate that report every four hours, like that's an Amazon limitation and you don't get information like which API they called. You just see that a particular service was called and you don't get you know, IP information and that stuff. But on the other hand, like it's a pretty glaring signal if there's a use of an API key is picked up in the safety net and you don't have any logs in CloudTrail, it means someone's actively calling uh, APIs, which they know won't show up in CloudTrail, which suggests a relatively advanced or at least sophisticated attack. They're not sure, just saw an API key, tried it. They're at least thinking yeah. about the potential of getting caught here. I think the the thing you got going for you here, though, is that the edge cases are going to be few enough that once someone finds a good one, word will get around, everyone will start using that edge case, and then Amazon's going to be motivated to fix it. And then you've got this fallback thing, which, I mean, four hours is good enough for, for most people sure. when you look at, you know, average dwell times of like 193 days or whatever, like, you know, four hours will still yeah. get you there. Yeah. So no. So that like I'm kind of the four hours for us is I actually don't think it's that bad. Like four no, neither hours do I. You were saying it with this like clearly. ashamed look on your face, and I'm like, <laughs> well, dude, that's fine. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the we just like this 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 idea of you know simple stuff that works well, like high fidelity and simple. And this one kind of ticks those boxes for us. Like the implementation is simple, but the kind of uh, the, the confidence that we have in, in the, the sort of detectability of, of Canary tokens gets uh, hugely ramped up. And, and we like the fact that folks on, on Twitter tried it and, you know, the safety net gets triggered like it works immediately. It's sort of 
you know, our thing is it does what it says on the tin. Yeah. And that's what the, the safety Well, I mean, this is the thing, does. like your stuff now is is established enough that you're actually starting to bump into, you you know, uh, unusual edge cases and try to solve them and stuff. There, it's an interesting blog post. I'll link through to it in this week's show notes so people can check that out. Uh, now, of course, I, I do want to t- look, every vendor has been coming here to do sponsor interviews to talk about Log4j stuff, right? Um, but sure. Thinkst really did have kind of a moment in the sun uh, through that whole crisis, because you spun up some, um, you spun up some canary tokens for Log4j, which became just insanely popular, right? I think what you had like three yep. million, uh, three million people using canary tokens for Log4j during the height of the Log4j crisis of yeah. twenty twenty one or whatever. There's- yeah, there's currently 3 million Log4j Canary tokens. Like for me, there was a super interesting lesson that we take away from it, but it's actually an internal lesson. And so like the Log4j token for one is only in our free service. Like we don't have it in the paid service and and it, like that's a specific choice for us. Like we think it has a limited shelf life and we sort of don't want to pack the product with stuff that, you know, is not going to be useful to customers a year from now. But internally, like it was a great example for, for newer folks as we sort of try and acclimatize them to our way of thinking around small changes can have this crazy impact. And, and so like the actual change where we, we, we enabled log4j. So log4j comes out, the, the, the issue comes out, Florian Roth, in fact, proposed the idea on Twitter to us and said, Hey, a, a canary token would be awesome for this. Um, and the end thing was like, about 20 lines of front-end code change. That's it. Like there was no, almost no I mean, no this is the thing too. Change. It was less, it was, people weren't using it really as a canary token. They were using it as a, you know, they were using canary tokens it's essentially as testing infrastructure, right? To, to try to yep. unearth this thing everywhere. So everybody got onto it. And all of a sudden you were dealing with an awful lot of, <laughs> an awful lot of uh, demand and load, right? A lot of load, more than it's designed for, uh, and so yeah. so we sort of released this thing just before we that the company went on a vacation, um, which made our first uh, week of vacation not vacation. This happened my first week. This happened my first week off as well, and I remember standing. I was at the the train park with my with my daughter. You know where they got the little miniature train, and I'm like just spending the whole time walking around with my family, like scrolling Twitter going, <laughs> right? So I can only imagine what it was like uh, for you with actual um, skin in the game. But I mean, tremendously yeah. successful, right? People actually used uh, the Log4j Canary token to get that bug to trigger in all sorts of places. I did see some people giving you a little bit of flack saying, well, surely, you know, this could be used for offensive purposes and whatever. But I would say the defensive use case here would just overwhelmingly um, outweigh any potential uh, malicious misuse. So that that seemed a bit of a silly argument to me. But it you did actually have a bit of a bad time with this because at one point, didn't some database fall over or something and you lost a whole bunch of these canary tokens? Yes. So that did happen. So we we were sort of scrambling to to uh, scale that machine and uh, we suffered a an incident, let's uh, let's put it like that, which, you which lost. resulted in some some data loss. Yeah, there, there was a there was a thing. Um, but like almost jokes aside, like in my uh, in in my years at Things, and I've been there a while. Like that was my worst day at Things. Like actually, the idea that yeah, you lost but I mean, data. this is the free service that no one was expecting. Like three million people to start using, right? Like I think you get a pass. No, no customers were affected or anything like that. Like 
I think if you're offering sure. for something for free, you're kind of almost allowed to have that kind of bad day, in my view, anyway. How many how many yeah. tokens did you lose though? Because it was a lot, right? Uh, something like two million tokens, something like that. <laughs> did they so, all come back? Did those users mostly come back and generate them? I would have. I figured they would have mostly have just used them a few times and then kind of discarded them anyway. Yeah. So, so our our understanding of the pattern of usage of the log4j tokens are, are that they're fairly short lived, uh, yeah. which is. So, so, but there's also a thing there of, you know, you're kind of selling yourself on the idea that it wasn't so bad. It was pretty bad. Like, like we don't like the idea that we lost data, even though, yes, it's in the free service, but like that stuff does reflect. Um, and yeah, it was a, I, I count that as a bad day at the office. Yeah, but Actually, it's, it, it, it was, it was InfoSec yeah. chaos week. I mean, I saw it and I just thought, oh <laughs> man, that's, you know, that's just like so on brand for InfoSec uh, Chaos Week. Are you still finding yeah. people are using these uh, these Log4j ones? Are they still actually getting hits on them? I mean, you would actually have, through canarytokens.org, you would actually have some pretty interesting telemetry on hit rates for Log4j canary tokens, right? Like, are there any insights you can share from that? Unfortunately, I can't. And and the reason for that is, is pretty uh, mundane. Like, we actually don't troll that stuff for insights. So we, 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 we kind of hands off with it in the sense that like we see it as a, a service that we run, but we don't actively aim to to do conversions or use that for, for insight-ish stuff. So like that service runs, we want to support it. And so the, the sort of numbers are, we still know if people use them. So we add about 3000 log4j tokens an hour still. Um, so it's still getting uh, quite a lot of usage. But that, I mean, for us, that hints at tooling and, and sort of it's been built into scripts and so on did you just lose log4j tokens or did you actually lose other tokens as well so it would have been uh, the ones that all tokens created in that gap um so the the numbers that we had like our numbers are not we certainly don't deal in those sorts of numbers with with uh, regular users so just to put that into context we've got about six hundred thousand other tokens which are not log4j and that's over the lifetime of the service which is since 2015 so so basically you just lost like tokens generated in a specific time window when log4j was kicking off yeah, yeah man you totally yeah, got to pass on that that's fine <laughs> it's so funny now marco another thing that we uh, just want to quickly touch on is that uh thinkst is as usual uh hiring uh not trying to become a mega vendor uh still a small to medium um you know security company um but yes you are looking to hire particularly engineers is that right that, that's right. So we've got a hiring page. We're looking for security engineers. Um, and and I think the thing that that we sort of offer folks, or at least one of the, the things that we we would pitch is, you know, as a, as a small company, folks who join us have an outsized influence. And, and I think we like to think we punch above our weight, uh, given our size. And, and so what it means is someone joining us gets to have an outsized influence, you know, a, like 23 line front end code change. And you now have millions of, of tokens created, um, tens of thousands of people uh, using it. We try and do stuff differently, and I know most folks are going to say that. Um, but the one thing that we we do is we give everybody a company credit card, and we do it for two reasons. The one is that, like, it's just it removes a whole bunch of friction, right? So, like, if some piece of equipment breaks, just go buy the equipment. Like, don't fill in a form, don't wait for someone else in another department to replace it. Just like go un unblock yourself. Uh, but the second one is actually more interesting for us, and that's we actively encourage people to go and explore. Um, and go and try things and 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 spend money and not obviously crazy money here but but like if you could find for argument's sake some productivity tool that saved you 15 minutes a day and it's cost you ten dollars a month or something 
like that's well worth it. But unless people have actual agency and the ability to just quickly sign up for a thing and, and go for it, they're never going to be trying all these things. And you have to go through a bunch of these things before you're going to find tooling that works for you. And so yeah. we actively encourage people to go out to spend money and try and look for things and, and make the rest of us better. So there you go. Go to canary.tools slash hiring and you too can have a credit card that you can use to rent a Ferrari for weekend drives. <laughs> I'm sure that's what it's that's what it's for. All right, Marco Slaviero, thank you so much for joining us on the show uh, for this conversation. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. Cheers. Thanks, Pat. That was Marco Slaviero there from Thinkst. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Thinkst for being one of our major sponsors for years and years and years. Uh, you can go to canary.tools to buy their stuff. And you should, really, because Thinkst canaries are really, really inexpensive uh, and deliver a boatload of value. I mean, you can get going with them for like a few thousand dollars, right? So um, that is quite unusual uh, in this old industry of ours. But yeah, that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.